Hey everybody, welcome to the podcast. I'm Steven. And I'm Daniel. And today we're going to be talking about a topic that you guys voted on. So we gave you a few topics as suggestions, and you all voted on YouTube for women in the early church. So that's what we're going to be covering today. Yeah, and we're in the uh, second century. If you've been following us, um, if you like what we're doing, like, subscribe, uh, tap the bell for notifications for um, for new episodes when they drop. Yeah, and I do want to say, um, as an aside, Daniel and I are really, really happy with the community that we're building here. The the thoughtful engagement um, online that you guys have had in the mm-hmm. comment section of a lot of our uh, videos has really been great. I, I've actually really impressed with um, with the caliber of the audience that we're building. So thank you so much for your engagement. Continue to leave us comments. Um, I, I actually learn quite a bit from from even our audience. It's it's really great. We're building a really nice community. So thank you for everything that you guys do. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, guys. So the purpose of this episode then um, is not to I'll tell you what we're not going to do. We're not going to straw man the argument for the ordination of women. Um, to the priesthood specifically, um, we're, we're going to do our best to give the strongest argument um, for it yeah, because, from the, because the Christian sources. Like the rest of our videos, this channel isn't a theology channel. Right. It's, a, it's historical theology. It's history. Um, and so when we're gonna, or if we're going to speak about the roles that women played in the early church, um, obviously that question is going to come up. Well, were they priests? And so we're going to address that that issue here. But we, we do so from a historical perspective. We we can let the church theologize. We can let other people theologize. Obviously, we have our we'll have our opinions, our Catholic takeaways. But we will look at it from more of a historical uh, perspective. Yeah, and that's not to say too that this is purely a Protestant problem. Obviously, since the 1970s, um, it has spilled over into the into the the Catholic fold. And so this is this is a and we'll talk about why it's it's a it's a dead debate, but it's also a very live debate. Um, and especially recently in the the synod and synodality, you saw some of the official imagery come out about that. And and one of them uh, had like a woman dressed as a priest, right? So this is this is something that even within the Catholic Church, um, people are lobbying for women priests, and obviously other people are standing with the tradition. Yeah, no doubt so, about it. I mean, obvi- yeah. obviously the German Church for sure is lobbying for it. Uh, we saw at the Amazonian Synod a lot of voices yeah. were being raised in in um, favor of women's ordination to the priesthood uh, because of the lack of priests and the vastness of the Amazon territories. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it it is a live issue, um, but um, you know we'll get into what the church's official stance is, and then we'll we'll show from historical perspective why that stance is there. Right. So let's dive in. So let's get into. Um, the early sources. Um, let's maybe set the backdrop for women, women's involvement and membership in the early Christian communities. Um, I don't know, maybe best place to start could be Christianity's detractors, right? So maybe let's start with Celsus. Um, so Celsus is early, uh, antagonist of Christianity (laughs) to say the least. Um, most of his writings are actually preserved in the writings of Origen of Alexandria, um, who, act, who, who committed his writings to memory <laughs> um, pretty amazingly. Um, so so it's, like, it's funny. The only reason we have Celsus's writings is because the brain of Origen uh, remembered them. But Celsus set out to write against the Christian claims. Um, and so he wrote, uh, he wrote books against uh, Christianity. And so yeah, the, one of... Go ahead. And, yeah, and the, and the books, the, the true word is what he called it. Right. right. So 
he knew the Christians had this kind of logos theology, and he named his critique of uh, Christianity the, the true word. Right. <laughs> so um, he leans into uh, something that will become pretty pretty common accusation uh, towards the Christian movement. Um, I don't know. Do, do you have Do you have the actual quote in front of you or no? For yeah, for I got a snippet. Yeah, let's uh, read that. So, uh, Kelsus, um, he says the teaching of Christianity was especially attractive to uh, the silly and the mean and the stupid women and children. Um, and that's not just that's not just Kelsus, it's other detractors of Christianity too, looking from the outside in at the Christian movement and seeing it as a movement of women. Uh, Kelsus, in another spot in his work, points out that it was a hysterical woman who first recognized Jesus as risen from the dead and was the first person to take that message to um, to the rest of the disciples and apostles. So how can we believe that, right? Because it comes yeah. from a woman kind of thing. But it, but his but but the sense is from 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 the Roman perspective that Christianity is filled with a lot of women and children. Right, right. And so um and that and that comes like you said from other writers too. It's not just Kelsus, but it is yeah. a common accusation of these writers that it's like, oh, you're just a bunch of silly women and children. Now you, you could take that as is that true, right? Or is mm -hmm. or is that kind of a literary device uh, by Kelsus to to discredit Christianity, which it very well could be. Yeah. Um, well, basically, um, you have two scholars who have produced some research that that kind of lends a little bit of credence to every stereotype in a way almost kind of has like a little bit of a little bit of like a truth to it. You know? And that's why it that's yeah. what makes it funny in the first place. Um, so you have the works of uh, Robin Lane Fox and Rodney Stark, right? So, so they, they in a way um, doing statistical analysis of the, the makeup of the, of the early church. Stark. Um, yeah. Yeah. Lend some credence to Kelsus slur in a way. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I would recommend Robin Lane Fox's book um, to anybody listening to our channel. It's a fan, it's called Pagans and Christians, uh, but it is a fantastic study and still a, a hallmark uh, for early Christian um, understanding of early Christian expansion and and just the um, environment of the early church. Uh, but he but in in his book specifically, he points out some some interesting features and some numbers uh, that begin to lend credence to the idea that, yeah, early Christianity was, was probably a majority, made up of majority um, female. And uh, he'll point to something like Pope Callistus in the early 3rd century, so a little after our 2nd century focus, but in the early 3rd century, um, Pope Callistus kind of tries to scoot around the law, the, the, the Roman marriage laws, by allowing Christians to have just concubine concubines mm. and he calls it just concubines um and what we think is happening there is that there were so many high high-born women within the church of rome at the time and they were having relationships with with men of course but they happened to be lower born men there weren't mm -hmm. enough high-born men within christian ranks for women to marry. The problem is, if a, if a woman in Roman society was to marry below her status, you would lose some legal privileges. So what, what we think Pope Callistus was doing was kind of 
skirting the Roman laws on marriage, recognizing the relationships that were there to um, help the women of the early church maintain their social status, their privileges um, under Roman law. So there's a little little suggestion there that there's, at least in the church in Rome, um, perhaps more highborn women than there were available, <laughs> available men. Um, we also hear again from Rome in the more in the middle of the third century um, during the persecutions. There's a, a, a tally taken of what was collected, and we hear um, also of lists of who's in the church, uh, how many deacons are there, how many priests, how many bish- uh, how many um, uh, yeah priests and deacons. Um, but we also get a list of widows uh, in, in the church, and we're told that 1,500 widows and poor were being taken care of by the church in Rome. So we don't know exactly, so 1,500 widow, widows and poor, so we don't know exactly how many widows, but 1,500 um, in that number, you, you'd have to say there's at least quite a few dozen widows who are being taken care of in the, in the third century in the, church of, in the church of Rome. So that's yeah. a lot of widows. Yeah, that's that's um, not a widow number. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Sorry. <laughs> um the other <laughs> the other bit of uh evidence that was pretty good though. The other bit of evidence uh comes a little bit later during the great uh, the final great persecution of Christians under Diocletian in the year 303 in the city of Cirta um they collect uh, items from the church. And here's a list of some of the items. 16 male tunics, 38 veils, 82 female tunics, 47 female slippers. So you don't want to push things too far, but some of these little evidences along the way mm-hmm. are, are letting us know that what Kelsus is saying, that stereotype that women make up the majority membership of the church, it's, it's probably true. Yeah, yeah. And you also have, at this time, Mithraism is spreading, you know, across the empire as well, right around the same time as Christianity. And, I mean, we know in the cult of Mithra that women are not even permitted at the mysteries. Um, And then when you look at, say, from an outsider looking at the Christian movement, you see women kind of playing these these roles of like host host hosting the gathering um i mean that's that's quite a that's quite a stark contrast um so again yeah. maybe lending itself to that perception that oh it's a movement of a bunch of women and children you know well it, well yeah exactly and it begs the question well what if that's the case what was attractive uh to women um you know what what attracted them to the church i guess obviously uh yes the gospel itself the message yeah. of salvation, the person of Jesus, all those things. Uh, obviously, women had great faith and were coming into the church. But what are some other, you know, perhaps motives that were there? Um, you know, compared to the rest of Greco-Roman society, the church um, kind of breathed a, a, a breath of fresh air into um, into women's lives. Uh, you know, in the church, women did have these uh, kind of um, liberating roles, which we'll get into. Um, So that's attractive to them. The church is taking care of widows left and right. Um, So that's attractive to to women in in Rome. You have to remember that there's a lot of widows in Rome (laughs) because 
or potential widows, I should say, because in Roman society, women married very young, and their husbands were usually a lot older. Mm-hmm. And so the husbands very oftentimes were dying uh, much sooner than their wives, and their wives were only maybe in their late 20s or early 30s. So in Roman law, it was always encouraged to have second marriages. But Christianity from the beginning has this ascetic tinge to it, and it's promoting virginity. It's promoting widowhood. It's even in some cases um, shying away from second marriages. St. Paul, right? So elevating women as single people even must mm-hmm. have been must have been attractive to many women in in Roman uh, Roman society. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and and would allow them to to kind of fill these sort of influential roles and um, yeah. and to have the well, freedom look, and to, and to have the freedom to be able to 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 do things for 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 the Christian movement. Yeah, yeah. Look, you know, it's Roman society at this time, first second century. Roman society was opening up a little bit, um, where women had a little more of a public uh, witness and public voice. I guess you could say, you know, it's not like ancient Greece. Ancient Greece, women were at best second-class citizens or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what Close I mean? Close to slaves um, in, under yeah. law, yeah. Right. So so status in ancient Greece was about gender. Are you male? Mm-hmm. Okay, then you're higher status. In in Rome, Rome changes that outlook. And in, in Roman society, it was really based on um, social status. Yeah. So, so, you know, were you high-born? Were you low-born? Okay. And there's this cursus and norm. There's this ladder that both men and women could could rise up mm-hmm. um, and there's there's plenty of instances in 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 Roman literature of of Roman women um, being highly praised for their rulership literally rulership of the domestic sphere which we know wasn't just sitting home and, and knitting it was running <laughs> in the economy literally running oh, the man. economy of the of the household yeah and the slaves yeah looking yep. after the slaves and everything so yeah, exactly um, cool so Knowing then that the perception is that women have these prominent roles in the in the early Christian movement, um, it's it's probably good to run through some early Christian women, especially starting with the Bible. Yeah. You know, uh, some na- some kind of big names, and and maybe talk about maybe a little bit about their roles. Um, so maybe let's let's start with uh, Prisca, right? Yeah, Prisca's a good one. Um... So Prisca is um, is always mentioned with her husband Aquila, but the interesting thing about Prisca is that uh, out of the six times that she's mentioned in the New Testament, four of those times she's actually mentioned first. That's a bit odd. Uh, you you'd always expect the male to be first, mm-hmm. um, so that the early church. W- was comfortable listing Prisca first must have must be um, showing us that the, the kind of high regard that she was held in. Uh, it could mean that she perhaps came to the faith before her husband, um, and she's the one who brought him in. Um, it could it could be that she had um, perhaps more roles in the church than her husband. We do see a great sense of uh, mutuality between Prisca and Aquila. In their missionary work, St. Paul refers to them as his co-workers and uh, as missionary partners. There are times when they helped him not just spreading the gospel, but also monetarily. 
um, supporting the church. In fact, we're told that the church met in Prisca and Aquila's house, right. and so they were hosting uh, the, the worship assemblies uh, in, the, in the churches. There's also this interesting episode in the book of Acts where um, Apollos, the Alexandrian, is uh, teaching uh, the gospel, but Prisca and Aquila notice that he's not teaching it quite correctly. Right. <laughs> and, so, and so we're told that he is, um, Apollos is pulled aside by uh, Prisca and Aquila, and they explain to him the word of God more clearly. Yeah. So, so and, and there's no sense here in this little episode that Aquila took the lead. It, it, there's this, there, again, there's a mutuality here where Prisca and Aquila both take Apollos aside and explain to him and teach him uh, the proper way of um, uh, about the gospel. And so, um, obviously, Priscilla uh, or Prisca is is well educated in theology, uh, along with her husband Aquila. Right. Right. And then we have um, we have Junia um, called an apostle. I'm not really sure if it's I'm not really sure if it's worth. I don't know spending too much time on that one, just because the word apostle is also used for many people <laughs> throughout the New Testament, and it's used pretty loosely. Um, like it can mean, I mean, it can just literally refer to messenger and not necessarily refer to the twelve or the seventy. Um, so it can be used in general ways too. Right. I mean, yeah, no, no doubt about it. It's, um, you know, there's, there's also a manuscript issue issue here. Um, yeah. the, I think the oldest manuscripts of the new Testament, and this, this occurs in, um, Romans chapter 16, where Junia is mentioned as an apostle. Um, the manuscript tradition has a, the, the oldest one has a female name, Junia. But there's other old manuscripts that have a male name, Junias. Um, so there's still controversy among scholars if it is referring to a woman. But even if, even if it is, um, that's true. Uh, Junia is referred to as an apostle. Um, and we know that the term apostle at that time, when the letter of the Romans is written in the, in the late 50s, it is used uh, much more in a general sense. Yeah. Um, as somebody who has sent a missionary, a helper, uh, like Paul says, a, a co-worker. Um, but I, I think people would be surprised to hear that a woman perhaps is referred to as an apostle in the New Testament. Um, I think it's important to keep in mind with this one that even St. Paul himself distinguishes between apostles and the Twelve. Right. He knows of the Twelve. He mentions the Twelve. Um, so that's so when we're studying these these kind of topics, we have to remember that that words have a lot of different meanings, um, sometimes at the same time, uh, especially in the Greek language. Uh, but yes, so Junia uh, listed as an apostle in the early church, which which meant probably that she was an important evangelist, uh, teacher, and missionary for the early church. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because you do have like, for instance, like in Second Corinthians eight twenty three, um, Paul describes other people who, you know, as apostles who didn't actually hold the office of apostle, he says, quote, and, and as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the, the glory of Christ. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, 
He also, in Philippians 2.25, uses it in another general way about um, Epaphroditus. He says, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your apostle and minister to my needs, your messenger, right? So there, there are these, these sort of just more general ways of, of using the term, and it seems that that's what's in view with, with Junia. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and don't forget, um, uh, that's, not to dim- that's not to diminish the work. Right. Right, because remember what St. Paul says, uh, I think it's in Corinthians, uh, that the church was given first apostles and prophets and teachers. Right. Okay, and then other leaders. Yeah. So the apostolate is kind of this foundational missionary groundwork, uh, the gr- the real grind that's that's taking place in the first century just to get the message out. And both yeah. men and apparently women are leading that charge across the Mediterranean. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then we have we have Nympha. Um, she's also mentioned, and it appears that she is uh, one of these figures that we mentioned, like hosting the gathering in her home, perhaps. Um, what do you? Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. What What do you uh, think about that one? I don't have the the verse, but uh, um, what's interesting about that is that throughout the first century and second century, well into the third century, you do see a a fair amount of references to s- women who are probably single, um, they're, because they're able to host the church in their home. It doesn't mm-hmm. mention a husband being there. And if there is a husband, the husband's probably pagan, uh, or non-Christian at least. Um, but here we have somebody like Nympha, actually like Prisca and Aquila, but a woman uh, on their own hosting the church in her own home. So before we said that Prisca and Aquila were doing it, but here we, we have Nympha, uh, a woman, uh, literally taking in the whole church into her own house and hosting the church for their, uh, for their worship services. Yeah. Um... I was just trying to grab the verse. Yeah, four, uh, Colossians 4.15. Yeah, Colossians. Yeah. So it says, uh, Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and also Nympha and the church that is in her house. Um, so yep. yeah, obviously a host yep. of, the, of the gathering. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have a reference to the daughters of Philip in the, in the book of Acts. Um, specifically in Acts chapter 21, verses 8 through 9. Um, so it says, the next day we left and came to Caesarea, and we went into the house of Philip, the evangelist, one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who had the gift of prophecy. Um, and th- this, is, this is very significant, um, and it, it does actually, they do get brought up again in extra-biblical sources. We, uh, we've mentioned before, I think, um, Papias of Heropolis. Um, so he's like a very early very early figure, possibly late late first century, early second century, but he he's also going through his records. Uh, he's going around talking to elders, people who knew the apostles, and he's gathering as much as he can of the sayings of Jesus. He actually wrote five books of the of the sayings of Jesus, like almost all of them. Yeah, actually, all of them lost. Only we only have fragments left in uh, the writings of Eusebius. But he mentions in there um, interactions with the daughters of Philip. Uh, who were prophesying. So mm-hmm. obviously well-known, attested to um, women prophets. Um, yeah, and, and, and go, go back and read um, you know, St. Paul's letter to the Corinthians, where he's speaking 
directly to the worship services, to the assembly there, and how they're acting, and he's has, he has to scold them. But yeah. he does he does say that both men and women were prophesying, as long as women had their heads covered or veiled, um, they could in fact uh, prophesy in the assemblies. Yeah, yeah. There's nothing nothing really controversial about that. I mean, and when you move all the way to the early third third century in North Africa, Tertullian you know, mentions it in his writings too, that they have a woman in their congregation who regularly prophesies during the liturgy. Well, actually, technically she prophesies, she gets her prophecies during the liturgy and then afterwards relays them to the, to the elders of the church. Um, so this kind of prophetic activity is happening within the communities, men and women, um, and, and in its proper order most of the time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And you, you had, you had the, and you had in the early church, the office of prophet, um, yeah. Which, which ends up kind of fading off, and there's mm-hmm. there's reasons for that. Um, well, we did three uh, episodes on it, so if anyone wants to go, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but you did have that office as well, right? Um, we do have, we do have. I don't know if you want to call it a legendary figure or not, but we have we have Thecla, um, the Acts of Paul and Thecla. Uh, maybe a word on her. Yeah, um, so Thecla is venerated, uh, uh, predominantly in the Eastern Church, um, but the Acts of Paul and Thecla date from the middle to later 2nd century, and we're in the 2nd century, so we, right, it's worth yeah. mentioning. Um, so the actual document is probably a, uh, a fictional narrative, a novel, a Christian novel, if you will, right? Uh, early Christians also wrote novels and, and fictions. Uh, but that doesn't mean it doesn't reflect uh, uh, what was possible uh, in, in the second century church. Right. So Thecla is a um, basically a, a convert to Christianity. And we're told that she sits at the feet of Paul, listening to him all the time, uh, even kisses his chains while he's in prison, um, really becomes a, a companion of Paul, and ends up herself becoming a Christian, um, begs Paul to give her baptism. Paul says, you must wait to receive the water. Uh, we're not really told why Paul is telling her to to wait, um, yeah. but it probably has something to do with second century discipline. Uh, but Thecla then uh, goes out and begins to, to uh, preach the gospel, kind of a, an itinerant preacher. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're told she's captured a number of times. She's put in the arena. Um, and of course, we know this motif. She survives the beasts. Um, in fact, the beasts start to eat themselves and fight with themselves. Uh, and so it comes to where she's actually released by the, uh, by the Roman um, governor. Because of this, oh, she must really do worship the true God because she's been saved from these things. There's an episode that has caught a lot of attention, and that is um, uh, there's a part in the, in the narrative where Thecla decides to baptize herself. Um, and that's the part of the narrative that got the the, the story in trouble <laughs> by none other than by none other than Tertullian um, a few decades later after it was written. He does tell us who the uh, author of the work was. It was a priest, and that priest was actually deposed for um, for mm. that episode in this in this novel. Um, but the good things about the story here are that Thecla took on that teaching role. Mm-hmm. And by the end of her, her life, we're told that she was receiving very often people coming to her and she would teach the word of God um, correctly. 
So again, there's that that teaching role, that ministry role, uh, evangelism role that's there for for women. And even if this is a fictional narrative, it's showing what is what's possible that that people, yeah. oh yeah, this is something that's that's acceptable um, to right. the second century second century church. Um, yeah, and on I the will, score, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that you know there there were such things as early Christian schools. And uh, typically, they were private endeavors, right? The church, the church knew that they were happening and sanctioned them, but but schools were private, and they and they often happened within the homes of private lay individuals. Uh, Thecla would be one of those who is receiving disciples to her home and teaching the word of God. Right. Yeah. I mean, even uh, you know, on the on the Jewish side of things, with the the rabbinical movement. <clears throat> The synagogues were always centers of learning, but even more so um, with the rise of the rabbis. So you have, you know, this is all over the ancient world. If you were going to go to go to school, you know, like as a Jew, you're going to go to the synagogue and study under a rabbi. Well, it's kind of the same thing in Christianity. You're going to go to the local church and study under teachers. Um, I don't think we have talked too much about the office of teacher. Uh, I don't know if we can really make a whole episode out of it, but it, it was a pivotal office. In, especially mm-hmm. at the time period that we're talking about, um, the Didascalos was was. Uh, in fact, it's it's very possible that that's what Tertullian was in the early third century. You can tell he's not a priest, but he was a Didascalos, and you can see how much influence he has mm-hmm. in the Church of Carthage. Well, you know, so it's mentioned in the Didache as well in the first century that the teachers are very important figures in the community. So, um, on the score of teaching, we also have in the um, early second century document the Shepherd of Hermas mention of a woman named Grafty, and we've mentioned this before a little bit in the Clement episode because they're mentioned together, uh, but now is the time to kind of focus on the Grafty part of it. So um, what it says is, uh, he says, therefore you will write two little books and you will send one to Clement and one to Grafty. Then Clement will send it to the cities abroad because that is his job, but Grafty will instruct the widow's and the orphans, and then you will read it. He's talking to her, you know, Hermes. You will read it to the uh, to the church here in this city. So that's interesting. You have um, a specific designation as Grafty, as a teacher uh, in the community, specifically teaching the orphans and the widows. Um, so you can see that. Yeah, remember, you, you go ahead. And remember that you know uh, who, who does the church say that Clement is? <laughs> Clement is the bishop of Rome. Yeah, uh, and so. In in the Shepherd of Hermas, you know, you're, if you if you had to pick the two most important people, um, it would be the Bishop of Rome and then apparently Grafty, who's going to instruct the women and the children um, of the community. Right. Well, yeah, and especially the widows, as we said, it's pretty. There's a lot of widows. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, um, yeah, and, a lot of influence. And, 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 and what that may mean, because we see this reflected in later church order documents. What that may mean is that Grafty was the leading widow, right? Yeah. The, the head yeah. widow, if you will. Um, and widow very quickly became not just um, a, a position of need, okay? So in St. Paul's letter to, to Timothy, we see that there are widows who are actually being taken care of by the church, mm-hmm. but then there are widows. right? Widows who don't need the care of the church, but... They fulfill a specific um, function, and that function is to raise children of the congregation and to teach the children of the congregation and the other women, and instructing 
virgins, young women uh, in the congregations. Well, very quickly in the church's history, that actually turns into an official office of the church, yeah. the office of widow. Um, and the first time we hear that is, of course, from uh, Tertullian as well, that there is this specific office. So not just women who didn't have husbands who needed to be taken care of by the church, but also prominent women um, who led holy lives and who knew the faith and could instruct um, other members of the congregations. Yeah, the the role of widows, you can imagine, is a position that is ripe for, um, let's say, like other activities. You know, teaching, like we said, we already mentioned teaching, but also for evangelism, prophetic activity. It's ripe for that. And that really, that really recalls... This is a side note on the whole idea of like widows, and I'll include virgins here too, um, because a lot of times they're mentioned together, widows and virgins, especially in the later sources when you get into the early third century. Um, it's it's very possible that following the theme of our channel too, where we're saying that these early Christian communities um, see themselves as instantiations of the fulfilled temple cult. Um, we do have references in Old Testament texts to these women, these widows or virgins who are involved in the temple cult um, liturgically. It's, it's more than just, oh, there they are, you know, uh, cleaning up or something. I mean, they have liturgical functions, you know, obviously in the court of women. Um, but you, you see things like this in Exodus 38, 8, um, Psalm 68, 24 through 25. Um, one of the most striking was actually in Second Maccabees uh, three nineteen. It says, "And the virgins also that were shut up, um, which means like virgins, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, came forth, some to the high priest Onias, and some to the walls, and others looked out of the windows, and all holding up their hands towards heaven made supplication." Um, we even have in the Mishnah, um, you have reference to the veil of the of the temple. Um, being woven by um, 82 virgins. Um, in, in later texts as well, there's, there's hints that there's even housing for widows and virgins in the temple complex. Um, and then, of course, you know, when you come to the circumcision of Christ, we see Anna, you know, the prophetess, coming, coming forward as an old yeah. woman, right? You can assume yeah, a don't... widow, right? Yeah, and don't forget the context. Um, we've mentioned before the document, the Proto-Evangelium of James, uh, where Mary is seen as a temple virgin, and she's also weaving <laughs> the temple veil. Um, and and that con- that's a second century document. Yeah. So, you know, uh, women are, in at least where that document comes from, the provenance of that document, uh, women are at least uh, idolizing that view of the virgin as, um, as a temple uh, virgin. Right. Yeah, and it could, it could be another reason, apart from the, the prophecy in Isaiah, well-known that a virgin shall conceive and bear, bear a son, um, this emphasis in the New Testament, in the gospel narratives on, on Mary being a virgin might extend a little bit further beyond just the fact that there's, there's a prophecy, because there's, you know, there's only one gospel that really mentions the prophecy, um, but the other ones mention that she's a virgin, right? So mm-hmm. it's, it's like, Maybe in the other gospel narratives, they're trying to tell you she's a temple virgin. Like they're, they're trying to emphasize that fact that she's a consecrated temple virgin. Um, yeah. 
So that's a possibility. Yeah. I mean, it's it's fun to play around with them. You don't really know for sure. But but what, what we could say is that this whole culture of having this role of widows and, and virgins and consecrated virgins and, and potentially, especially later on, having these liturgical functions, it could be, once again, another indicator that the early Christian communities see themselves, again, as this instantiated temple cult, right? Yeah, the continuation thereof. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think that's a, I think that's a good point. I, you know, the... The widows, you're, you're mentioning like liturgical function. They definitely had liturgical function in, in some areas of the church. And in fact, they were seen uh, as being seated and standing with the clergy at moments during the liturgy. So, mm. um, you know, we'll get to it down the road, but there's that document, um, Testamentum Domini. It's a church order document from the 4th, 5th century. But it mentions uh, the widows who uh, stand behind the veil with the, the presbyters and the deacons and the bishop, mm-hmm. um, which means around the altar. Yeah. And uh, they're seen in, those, in, those do- in that document as the ones who pray without ceasing, right? Because think, mm-hmm. think about a widow, okay? They, they don't often have a home to go back to to take care of a husband or children. They're widowed. Their children are, are older because... Widows are older; have to be at least sixty years old in some of the stipulations and canons. Uh, so they have time, and so the office of widow a lot of times was the office of prayer, and that's what Origen says of the widows, and that's what a lot of the church orders say of widows um, a little bit down the road. They were the constant intercessors for the church. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, so the the final the final name that that we could bring up here is. Uh, Phoebe. However, maybe let's let's bring that into like kind of our next our next part of this discussion. Um, I do just want to note here that out of all the names that we've mentioned, these prominent figures, women figures in early Christianity, um, we don't see presbyter. <laughs> so, so we've mentioned a lot of things. We've mentioned teacher, prophet, evangelist, apostle, like all these different things, but we have not. We have not said presbyter. Um, so let's let's maybe uh, transition here and, and let's let's get into um, women in the priesthood. 